Last evening we looked at uh, the Holy Spirit and uh, we also looked at the unity of God. God. Our God that we worship is one God. One God in three persons. And uh, as we've been singing. Today we will look at the eternal pre-existence of Christ as uh, portrayed in the scripture. During the church service, we will look at Proverbs 8 and how uh, that might apply to Jesus. Uh, it is one of the main passages that has been relied on through the centuries to uh, come to the conclusion that Jesus was brought forth from the Father. We'll see how that cannot be sustained from Scripture. And uh, then this afternoon we will look at um, some of Ellen White's handwritten statements relating to the Trinity. And we will also look at um, the only begotten passages in Scripture. What do they mean? All right. I presume that uh, you all believe in the full deity of Christ. Adventists have always believed that. And uh, we saw last night that Jesus is the mighty God. Isaiah says that Jesus is the mighty God. John says the word was God. And Paul says that he was equal with God. The question that we want to ask today is, has Jesus always existed like the Father has always existed? There's one verse in the Bible that addresses this question directly. So let us start with that. It's found in Micah 5, 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. The significance of this text for our study hinges on the meaning of three key phrases, goings forth, from of old, and from everlasting. We will look first at the phrase goings forth. The Hebrew word translated goings forth occurs only twice in the Old Testament. It's Mozart. It is here in Micah 5 2 and it's in 2 Kings 10 27 where it refers to a toilet house of all things. This doesn't tell us very much about the meaning of the word in Micah 5 2. But happily there is a solution because this Hebrew word Mozart is feminine and there is a masculine form of the same word which is Mozart. The next question is, do masculine and feminine forms of the same word have the same meaning, like king and queen for instance? And the answer is yes they usually do. So we want to look at the 
masculine Hebrew word Mozart, and what does that mean? It is found 27 times in the Old Testament and is used in a variety of ways, all with the same basic meaning. It is used six times of water springs, that is, water coming out of the ground. It is used five times of words coming out of the mouth. It is used three times of going out on a journey. What is of the most significance to us is that it is used twice for a king going about his business. In 2 Samuel it says, Thou knowest Abner the son of Ner, that he came to deceive thee and to know thy going out and thy coming in and to know all that thou doest. So it's used there of David's business as a king. It is used once of God, the king of the universe. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter rain and the former rain upon the earth. So we see that the masculine word Mozart, when it is used of a king or of God, is translated going out or going forth in the sense of going about their business as a ruler. These are the only two verses that give a meaning that is appropriate for the feminine word Mozart in Micah 5.2. The translation goings forth is particularly significant in this context. It refers both to God and a king going about their business of ruling. This is especially appropriate in Micah 5.2. The verse is about the birth of Jesus, the one who is to be ruler in Israel. Jesus is well qualified to be such a ruler because his goings forth, that is doing the business of a king, have been from of old, from everlasting. The idea that some have expressed that the Hebrew word means a birth or an origin does not fit in this verse at all well, for the word is plural. I doubt if anyone would wish to contend that Jesus had multiple births in the distant days of eternity. So let us take the very appropriate meaning given, given in the King James Version goings forth in the sense of doing his business as king of the universe. I trust that you are all with me on that. We will now look at the expression from of old. The Hebrew word here is kerem. It is found in the Old Testament 87 times. The word is most frequently used of people or things that, although old, are not eternally old. However, when used of God, it always refers to the eternity of his existence. For example, the eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one, we shall not die. 
Since Jesus is God in the fullest sense, kerem must also mean eternal when used of Christ, as here in Micah 5.2. The next expression we'll look at is from everlasting. The Hebrew word is olam. This word is found in the Old Testament 439 times. It is usually translated forever. Sometimes it only means for a long time, as you would probably know. For instance, Jonah says, The waters compass me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth was a, with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. However, there are a large number of verses where this word is used to describe the eternity of God. It always means his eternal existence. Among these verses are, And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Another one, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting and to everlasting. Another one, Before the mountains were brought forth or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. I don't know that there's a more definite scripture relating to the eternity of God than that. From everlasting to everlasting thou art God. Now since Jesus is God in the fullest sense, Olam must mean eternity when used of Christ in Micah 5.2. There is only one other word that is used in the Old Testament to indicate the eternity of God. That is the Hebrew word ad. It is used 48 times and is mostly translated forever. It is used many times of God. For example, the Lord is king forever and ever. That second ever is the word ad. Another one, for thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit, etc. This word art is used twice of Christ. Thy throne, O God, is for ever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter, Psalm 45, verse 6. This is a messianic psalm which can be seen from the next verse. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. The second verse where ad, meaning forever, is used of Christ is in Isaiah 9.6. We looked at this one last night, but here's another thought. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, <coughs> and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 
Christ is here called the everlasting Father. We will return to this idea shortly. In the meantime, we note that all three Hebrew words that refer to the eternity of God are also used of Christ. And since Christ is the fullness of the Godhead, as we learn in Colossians 2.9, these words must be telling us that Christ has always existed just like the Father. Thus, everything that is said of the Father's eternal existence is also said of Christ. If the Son is not eternally existent in the past, we have no scriptural grounds for saying that the Father has always existed. But if the Father has eternally existed in the past, as of course he is, then so also is the Son. We'll now look at John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. We know this, who this is, of course, because verse 14 tells us that the Word was made flesh. In the Greek language, as well as in the Hebrew, the word is or was is often not stated. It is simply understood without being in the actual statement. When the word is actually included, it can be for emphasis or to make a particular point. This is how it is in John 1.1. The verb was is translated from the Greek word ain. It indicates continuous, incomplete action in the past. It can perhaps best be translated, in the beginning the word was existing. In other words, no matter how far back in time we go for the beginning, the word was already existing. This naturally leads to the concept of Jesus' eternal existence in the past. The same concept is introduced even more emphatically in the next verse that we will consider, Hebrews 7.3, neither beginning of days. This is a very interesting verse. It refers to Melchizedek having no beginning of days and Paul is drawing a parallel with Christ. The passage of interest begins with the last verse of chapter 6. Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Paul is here drawing a parallel between Melchizedek and Christ. The parallel consists in the following elements. Melchizedek is priest of the Most High God. Christ is the high priest of our profession. Melchizedek is a priest continually. Christ is a high priest forever. 
Melchizedek is king of righteousness. Jesus is the Lord our righteousness. Melchizedek is king of peace. And Jesus is the prince of peace. It says concerning Melchizedek that he was without beginning of days. We've got to see what that means as far as Jesus is concerned. Or end of life. And uh, concerning Jesus, it says of his kingdom there shall be no end. Our text says that Melchizedek was made like unto the Son of God. All the other parallels hold good. Why not without beginning of days? It is very close to the statement made like unto the Son of God. Why would it be mentioned here if it was not a likeness? Now, one may well be objected at this point that Melchizedek was not really without beginning of days. He was just without a recorded father or mother. It is true that we do not know either from the Old or New Testaments whether Melchizedek was a divine being and hence had no literal father and mother or whether he was an ordinary man without parents or birth or genealogy recorded. We will assume for the sake of the argument that the latter is true. Now, if Melchizedek had no father, mother, birth or genealogy recorded, wherein lies the parallel? Jesus had all of these, a mother, a father, that's a legal earthly one, and a divine one. He had birth details, genealogy, that is descent. Why mention these things about Melchizedek unless it is to show that in a sense he had no beginning of days or end of life, something with which to draw the parallel with Jesus. But Jesus had an end of his earthly life at the crucifixion. There is no parallel there. The parallel exists with Jesus in the heavenly realm where we will reign with him forever and ever. In like manner, having neither beginning of days finds no parallel with Jesus' earthly life. It must apply to the heavenly realm. He had no reason to mention neither beginning of days, that is Paul, had no reason, if he was not going to draw a parallel using that expression. Paul did not here prove that Jesus had no beginning of days. He assumed that his readers would recognise it be, to be so and see the parallel. Now we're going to look at one of the most important passages of all in this context. Jesus is the I am. It's in, found in John 8 and we'll pick the story up at verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old and hast thou seen Abraham. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. The Jews' question related to time and Jesus' answer related to time. His answer was startling in four ways. Firstly, there is a stark contrast between the past tense, was, for Abraham, and the present tense, I am. 
Secondly, the Greek words for I am, ego I me, used here, add extra emphasis. The word ego meaning I is not necessary, for it is included as part of the verb I me, which means I am. It is added here for extra emphasis. Three, nothing follows the words I am. This indicates eternity of existence. And fourthly, Jesus' words link directly to Exodus 3, verses 14 and 15. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say unto me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. By using the words I am in the same startling way that Moses heard them at the burning bush, Jesus was claiming to be the very one that spoke to Moses. That is, he was claiming to be Jehovah. Matthew Henry says of these words in uh, Exodus, I am that I am. This explains his name Jehovah and signifies, one, that he is self-existent. He has his being of himself and has no dependence upon any other. Being self-existent, he cannot but be self-sufficient and therefore all-sufficient and the inexhaustible fountain of being and bliss. Two, that he is eternal and unchangeable. Three, that we cannot by searching find him out. Let all Israel know this, I am, hath sent me unto you. All this is what Jesus was claiming for himself by using the same words. It is not surprising that the Jews took up stones to stone him. But he was doing more than claiming to be self-existent. He was claiming to be the very one who spoke these words to Moses. This is not to say that he was claiming to be the father, but rather that the one who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush was the son. This will be shown to be the case in the next section. It was this verse more than any other that convinced W. W. Prescott of the eternity of Christ when he preached on this verse at a Bible institute at Kurumbong in 1896. He was very well received and was supported by Ellen White who said at that time that he has the truth in the heart as well as on the lips. We will now look at what Paul said concerning the spiritual rock in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink 
for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Paul is here drawing a parallel between the Israelite fathers and the Christian church. He mentions three things. The crossing of the Red Sea, which he likens to baptism. The eating of the manna and the drinking of the water that flowed from the rock that was smitten. However, it is not until he reaches the third point that he shows where the parallel lies. Christ was the rock, and as the literal Israelites drank from the literal rock, so the Christian church drinks from Christ. The parallel flows back. Literal Israel ate the manna, Spiritual Israel eats the bread of life. They were baptised unto Moses. We are baptised unto Christ. Paul did not merely refer to the Israelites drinking literal water. He said they drank of that spiritual rock, whom he then identifies as Christ. The parallel is much closer than Paul's readers might have thought up to this point. They drank of Christ, the same as we Christians do. The all thus embraces both the Israelite fathers and the Christians. All drink the same spiritual drink. All eat the same spiritual meat. All are spiritual partakers in Christ. Now what does it mean to eat and drink spiritually? We are told in Jeremiah, Thy words were found and I did eat them. Thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing in my heart. What does it mean then to drink of that spiritual rock that followed them? It means that they received from him the words of life. He was their teacher, and Paul says that he was Christ. Jesus said, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. The disciples said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. They drank spiritually the words of eternal life from the spiritual rock, which was Christ. This means that it was Christ who spoke the law from Sinai. It was Christ who communed with Moses and Moses said, Show me thy glory. It was Christ who fed them with manna and provided the life-giving water. It was Christ who opened the Red Sea. It was Christ who spoke to Moses at the burning bush. Such is the inevitable conclusion of Paul's statement. This conclusion is further supported by the 27 Old Testament verses that refer to God as the rock such as Deuteronomy 32. Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment, and a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Of the rock that begat thee thou art unmindful, and hast forgotten God that formed thee. Deuteronomy. 32. Since the God of Israel is the rock, and Jesus is the rock, 
the spiritual sustainer of the same Israel, how can we escape the conclusion that Jesus was the God of Israel? The above conclusion must mean that Christ is the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah. This is not meant to say that Christ is the Father or that the Father is not Jehovah. The Father is clearly revealed in several places in the Old Testament as a being distinct from Christ and it is the Father who is there called Jehovah. Both the Father and the Son as divine beings are each entitled to that name Jehovah. Now if Jesus is the Jehovah of the Old Testament then everything written there about his eternal existence in the past applies to Jesus as much as to the Father. This is why Jesus is called the Everlasting Father in Isaiah 9.6. Jehovah is called our Father in at least two places. Do you thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy Father that hath bought thee? Hath he not made thee? and established thee. And another one, Isaiah 63. Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not, O Lord. Thou art our father, our redeemer, thy name is from everlasting. So if Jehovah is our father, and Jesus is Jehovah who was saying these things, then Jesus is our Father, as it says in Isaiah 9.6. Now there are a number of places in the New Testament where Old Testament passages concerning Jehovah are applied to Christ. You remember that Isaiah prophesied concerning John the Baptist, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The word Lord here, all in capitals, refers to Jehovah. <clears throat> now it should be noted that in the King James Version where we have the word Lord all in capitals and occasionally the word God all in capitals, it's telling us that the original in that passage in Hebrew was Jehovah or Yahweh, as some modern scholars prefer. Now, Matthew clearly applies this passage in Isaiah to the work of John the Baptist. He says, For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now we ask, Who is the Lord whose way was prepared by John the Baptist? Clearly John prepared the way for Jesus. We thus say, see that in the prophecy of Isaiah the title Jehovah, or Lord in capitals, is a title of Jesus. Another example comes from the book of Acts where it says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. 
This is a quotation from the book of Psalms. I have set the Lord, all in capitals, always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Again, we have an Old Testament statement concerning Jehovah applied to Christ. Now, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is called Lord of Lords. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This statement is referring back to the Old Testament where Jehovah is called Lord of Lords. Deuteronomy 10.17 For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty, a terrible, which regardeth not persons nor taketh reward. The final example is from the book of Isaiah. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. But in the book of Revelation, Jesus calls himself the first and the last. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. By the very nature of things there can only be one first and one last. This fact clearly identifies Jesus as the Jehovah of Isaiah 44.6. But the Father is also Jehovah as we find in Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, that is Jehovah said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Here the first Lord is clearly the Father, for it is the Son who sits at his right hand. Thus, two divine beings, the Father and the Son, are both called Jehovah, and thus both are equally first and last. The only way this can be is for them to be co-eternal with each other. It is thus two divine beings who are brought to light in Isaiah 44, verse 6. The Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Both are called Jehovah, both are first, and both are last. They are co-eternal. Up to this point in today's study, we have considered two divine beings, the Father and the Son. Now I want to look at the fact that there are three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have already noticed these three in the Great Gospel Commission, Matthew 28. We did that last night. In one of his parting benedictions, Paul includes the Holy Spirit. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. You will notice that Paul does this in such a way as to place the Holy Spirit on the same level as the Father and the Son. Each has a special blessing to bestow on the believer, and the blessing bestowed by the Holy Spirit is that of communion or fellowship. Not so much fellowship with one another, but fellowship with the Holy Spirit. This surely indicates an intimate personal relationship which is offered to us. 
In the opening verses of Revelation, John records greetings which were sent to believers directly from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 reads, Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was, which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. The reference to him which is and which was and which is to come points to verse 8 where we read, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. This evidently applies to the Father, for greetings from Jesus follow in verse 5. The reference to the seven spirits which are before the throne points to Revelation 4.5. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. The seven lamps of fire before the throne which are the seven spirits of God are evidently a symbolic representation of the Holy Spirit since Revelation 1, 4 and 5, which records greetings from the seven spirits, there are greetings also from the Father and Jesus. The fact that the Holy Spirit is represented symbolically here in Revelation should not surprise us, since Jesus is also represented symbolically as a lamb as it had been slain. Revelation 5, 6. The fact that there are greetings from the Holy Spirit is a clear indication that he is a person and that he is distinct from the Father and the Son. But did you know that there is an Old Testament verse that clearly refers to three divine beings? Would you like to see it? It's in Isaiah chapter 48. Come ye near unto me, hear ye this, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was, there am I. And now the Lord God and his Spirit hath sent me. Here we have the Lord God and we have his Spirit, the Holy Ghost, who is the me who is being sent. It is clearly not the prophet because it says, he has been there speaking from the beginning, it says. It is clearly Jesus, the Word of God, who is being sent by the Father and by the Holy Spirit to this old world to redeem us. Praise His wonderful name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.